Hello, everyone, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson, and today I'll be speaking with Scott Erickson, head of school at Phillips Brooks School in Menlo Park, California. Scott, welcome to Member Voices. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I understand you have sort of a unique professional journey. Can you tell a little bit about what your professional journey has been like and how you ended up in the role you're in now? I think probably every one of us has a unique or a very distinctive journey that we take in our career path. Mine started um, as a young pianist, and that led to my studying music as an undergraduate. I also um, felt called to the ministry, and so I'm an ordained Episcopal priest, and so I actually went to seminary for graduate school after I finished my music degree. And then I spent um, almost six years living in Sweden, where I have my doctorate from Uppsala University. The reason that that was very attractive to me is that my grandparents immigrated from Sweden, and so I feel both a personal connection as well as a professional connection now um, to Sweden. After that, I was thinking that I might want to have a career that would look like college or university teaching, but I had a really interesting opportunity offered to me by a head of a boarding school in New England and thought that I would spend maybe a year or so um, at St. Paul's School in New Hampshire working and sort of thinking about if independent school education was the place for me. I ended up staying there for nine years and absolutely loved the teaching work I did, some of the leadership opportunities I had. After that, I had a very interesting position as director of middle school at the National Cathedral School for Girls in Washington, D.C. So that brought me back into a city setting and then have now been for eight years at my current school in the Bay Area in California and have absolutely loved everything uh, about my career I wanted to speak a little bit about your experience fostering great governance at your school and working with your board. How do you feel that your past experience has helped you to interact effectively with your board? I think at the end of the day, it's important for heads to build strong partnerships. It's not about agreeing on everything, but it's it's boards and heads being partners and being aligned. And I use that word aligned very intentionally. It's, again, not about agreeing on everything, but it's being aligned on what the priorities are and how the head and the board can work together in partnership to look to the end state to build successful strategies. That's very important. And so I would say that building building relationships is something I learned from the beginning in independent schools. Um, learning what makes trustees tick and what and what they think about and what's top of mind for them. And then having a vast experience, I would say, in the ways that schools work as an educator, um, having insights into how schools function and thinking really carefully about how to communicate that to trustees that can be consumable and that can resonate with them. What's been your biggest challenge uh, with your board? I think that one of the things I've worked very hard to improve on and to grow in, in my own growth mindset and to grow in as a head of school and to really lean into is to become better and better at anticipating what's coming up. I would maybe describe that as being better and better at issue spotting. And I think one of the things that my board has said they appreciate about me is that I take time to really think about what are the challenges, what are the problems, 
What are the topics that keep me awake at night? And how can I think about that before it becomes a really big problem or a really big topic? How can I anticipate what might be coming down the road in a year or two? And how do I then engage the board in a helpful dialogue about that topic? Because one of the things that my trustees often ask, and I think this is such a great question, is you know, what problem are we trying to solve here? What's the real problem we're trying to solve? Because if we can't answer that question, it may not be worth spending the time talking about it. And I think that that question, you know, what problem are we trying to solve, is a really good focus question because then it's possible for us to actually engage as a board and a head, and I would also say with my senior team, on how we can think that problem through and perhaps put some solutions and strategies in place to anticipate and issue spot how we can potentially solve that problem before it becomes a bigger problem. And I would say this, it's not just trustees that don't like to be surprised. I think that human beings don't like to be surprised. And so being able to think something through with my board and to allow them to refine my thinking, to think about my thinking and share with me what might be missing from their perspective, and being able to do that in a way that helps us anticipate together and to create some solution strategies together before we may need to solve a problem. And I think that that's a really important skill set. And I think it's something I worked very hard uh, to challenge myself and to be better at so that we don't get caught off guard. Are there other ways that you approach partnering with your board or specifically with your board chair on critical issues? I think that having an open, trusting, and very direct relationship with my board chair is very important to me. I think it's important to the board chairs I've worked with. I would imagine that those board chairs I've worked with, with would say that they have felt that way about how straightforward and direct and honest we've been. I think that starts with good relationship building. I have, I think, been um, really, really you know, blessed by the fact that before that person became a board chair, that person was a trustee. And so, you know, every board chair I work with except my first one, I've actually built a strong relationship with as a chair of a committee or as a trustee or as a parent or all of that before that person became the board chair. And I think that being able to really have the courage to say to the board chair, these are some things that are on my mind that worry me. And it could be about something board related or school related. Um, so that that can start a dialogue with the board chair. That's been, I think, super important. And being able to do that, actually, re it, it relies on having that strong relationship. But I think that one of the things I've learned in working with my board chairs is that they've appreciated that I have leaned into things that I see as problems. I um, tend not to want to sugarcoat things. Um, working with trustees or board chairs or the people I've worked with on the board, because I think it's allowed for a really respectful, honest dialogue about how we can solve the problems together. When I was a, a newish head, I think I made the assumption, I think incorrectly, that boards would like to think that the head of school has solved all these problems and these things are all really good. When in fact, I think what I have found is that the trustees I've worked with over the years love it when they can actually step into the head's thinking and really 
think with me as a head of school at this great school that we love, that we all love. We all want the same thing. We want the school to be successful. How can we together think through this potential problem or this current problem or this issue in a way that is going to ensure that we take the school to even greater heights of success and excellence and that we actually um, solve these problems for the benefit of our students? That's what we really want in the long run. Can you talk about how you know how much to share with your your board or your board chair to help them, you know, to align their work to school goals and objectives? Is there is there a line? How much is too much? What I have found to be very helpful is if I can find ways in one visual, one slide, or one page, or three minutes not 13, three minutes, to very, in a very pithy and very direct and in a very get-to-the-heart-of-matter way, describe an issue for the board. And so we can have an engaging dialogue about that. And so then there can be any kind of multiple-page backup appendices to that issue that any trustee can review if she or he wants to do that. That process has worked very well. It's a little bit like how we do the financials at the school here. There is usually a one to two page summary in text of the financials, whether it's the budget proposal or how we're thinking about tuition or something else. A summary so a person can get a really strong grasp, a trustee can get a very strong grasp. And then there are probably 15 to 20 slides with probably 5,000 numbers, right? Of everything a trustee would want to know about the financials of the school so they can go as deep as they want. And anytime they ask my CFO or me for more details, we give it to them. So I think there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. I think that we as heads need to be flexible because what I want is for every single trustee to feel confident that they know as much as they need to know about this particular topic so that they can weigh in with confidence and so that they can feel confident about the way the school is being managed and the way the the decisions that they're making as a board are being made. That's very important to me. Are there other best practices that you have when onboarding new board members or or even just building trust with your board chair and on the board? I think that if, you know, and many of us, this is true, that the majority maybe of our trustees are or have been current parents. You know, I think that my board is relatively you know, two-thirds current parents and then a third uh, former parents or um, alumni or others and or, you know, community leaders. That balance has served us quite well. I think the balance can shift up or down a little bit from that percentage. I think that when talking about current parents, it's pretty straightforward to build those relationships because those relationships happen because um, they happen through the parenting process, the co, you know, because we consider ourselves at the school as co-parents with the parents of these students. They're, we're working together in partnership. And my feeling, Scott, is that um, if there has been an outstanding parent-to-head relationship with this particular person, then it's quite likely that there's going to be an outstanding trustee-to-head relationship with that particular person. And I think in the onboarding, it's really about intentionality, giving you know these trustees a lot of information about the school, like the financials and the bylaws and the kinds of documents that are important to become familiar with, 
but we have an onboarding that isn't long. It's probably 90 minutes. Um, I would say my view on this is probably there's some things, you know, a mistake that can be made is we can overthink this. And I, and I do a very similar thing there. I'm very intentional. I essentially say to the trustees, you know, I, I would like you to help me with several things. One of them is please help refine my thinking. Help me to think better about these important topics. Please share with me what I'm missing. If we're dealing with a topic, make sure you share either in the board meeting or afterwards, tell me what I'm missing so that we can do this better. And I think, Scott, it's really an invitation to have a robust relationship trustee to head. I would want every trustee to feel comfortable texting me and saying, Scott, can we jump on the phone and have a conversation about something? And I always say yes when that happens. I always make time for that because I always learn something that that trustee is able to share something of importance to me. And I think most importantly, Scott, is it opens the door for board members to be completely open and honest about everything they're hearing. Because the fact of the matter is um, that these board members are hearing different things than I am. And I'm able to do my job better if they're sharing that with me. And if they don't feel comfortable sharing that, or if I don't invite them to share that, then my, I'm not able to do my job as well as I can. So I think it's creating the environment or the climate of openness and trust and information sharing. I think sometimes that this thing that you know can be said out there around, you know, trustees aren't supposed to have an opinion about program, or they they should they should be encouraged not to weigh in on program. That's the head's responsibility. I don't really espouse that because, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not being told by my board what to do around program, but I actually really invite them to share with me what they think about program and here's why. I think they have a fiduciary responsibility around program because if, if our program is as, as strong as it can be, then that's going to impact areas that absolutely impact the boardroom like finances and reputation. And so I think um, inviting the board into the headspace of the head of school has been something that I've found actually very stimulating because then they can come into that space with me and feel good about stepping out of that space because they've been intentionally invited to weigh, invited to weigh in on those topics. And let's face it, I mean, how cool is it if you're a trustee at an independent school where you can actually be invited to have an opinion about program. I mean, it's actually invigorating. It's engaging that they can actually um, weigh in on something like that, realizing that at the end of the day, the head's gonna make the decision. And I think being totally intentional about that is what allows us to do that well and to be partners in that process. If you had to describe your communication style and approach, or if one of your team members or someone at your school described it, what do you think that uh, that would be? You know, on this topic of communication, you know, there's certainly intentions that I have and things that I think I'm doing, and I probably am doing them, but there may be some people who don't experience them the same way that I intend. Mm -hmm. You know, there can be a gap between intention and actual outcome or a gap between the goal and intention and the actual uh, experience of the person being communicated to. So what I would say my approach is, 
I try to do everything I can to figure out what that gap is and to address it. Because I can be communicating till I'm red in the face about issue X, Y, or Z, but if it's not understood, or if it's confusing, or if it's not clear, then that communication is only worth the paper it's on. It's, if, if it's not landing, if it's not resonating, then that's a problem. And I'm not talking here about you know, communications that we want people to agree with. We're talking about communications that are clear and that ensure that people understand. And one of the topics I think that um, is a challenge is that there is education speak. We even may call it educators jargon for things that I might be very comfortable with and my teachers might be very comfortable with, but parents might not be comfortable with because they're not in that sphere of educational jargon. There's that gap between what may be my intention versus what the outcome might be. And then there's the multitude of different constituents that heads have to communicate to. And then there's the different types of jargon or educational or non-educational language that we may need to use so that the communications can be clear and consistent and most importantly, helpful. So I would say that my approach is to think about those three things, the gap between intention and actual outcome of that communication. Secondly, the multitude of constituents and how I need to communicate differently in some ways to different constituents. And then third, making sure that I'm getting good at the varieties of languages that are gonna land better with different constituents. Let me give you one example. There's a, term, there's a phrase in the business world called a key performance indicator. It's called KPIs, they're key performance indicators. Th those are ways that many businesses will measure the success of their strategies or their programs. Well, key performance indicators are not necessarily in the educational jargon, but I have started using that phrase, KPI, or a key performance indicator, in terms of how we now have created a dashboard to measure the efficacy or the effectiveness of our program and our teacher retention strategies. And the reason I'm saying this is that many parents in my community and most of my trustees are in the world where a KPI is an understandable way to measure something. But that may not be true for teachers. And I raise this because it's my job, I think, to find good ways and effective ways to communicate, both to those who understand and can relate to a KPI and to those who may not. And so rather than saying that my board members should get good at understanding what Scott Erickson is communicating as an educator, I think I'm the one who needs to think about them in their shoes and how to communicate to them. How about your learning style? How do you feel that you learn best? And how does that inform your approach to your work? What I know about myself also is that I tend to learn really well uh, when I start in my mind. And so for me, if there's a tricky topic, I find that I learn best by being stimulated by what people have said, by articles that they've written, mm -hmm. being stimulated by other people's ideas and thinking, and then being able to reflect a lot on how I can be thoughtful about it, that particular topic before I weigh in on it. And the challenge um, I would say today is that 
the pace of change has gotten much more quick than it was three, five, seven, and 10 years ago. And there is so much research out there, there's so much writing out there about everything around education. And some of that is good and some of that is really bad. And heads need to become better and better, I think, about being up on that research so that we can make our assessments and be in charge of those assessments rather than letting, say, um, a multitude of opinions be in charge of that research or those assessments or those definitions of educational um, practices. And so um, I would say that I've had to become a quick study on lots of different topics more quickly than I did before so that I can be as thoughtful as possible in my own learning and be the kind of leader that I want to be at my school. I'm curious if there are other ways that you felt that the role of head or, or even just working in education, working at independent schools have changed since you began working in schools? Have you noticed any other trends just based on your own experience? The availability of research to what I would call lay educators. And of course, we want all of our parents to be thinking carefully about how schools do their work. Um, but the availability of that research to all of our constituents is a, is, a, is a big trending change. And the way that um, I think our constituents, particularly the parents and stakeholders like parents, um, engage themselves in that research. I get sent articles all the time by parents. And it, it actually is refreshing to know that they're actually reading um, lots of materials about the educational process and educational practices. I think another trend is that there's been an increase in anxiety and stress. I would say that we may be living or entering into living in an age of anxiety where um, it's not just about educating our children, but my goodness, uh, the awful school shootings and um, the availability of social media that students have access to today that they didn't even five years ago and how that maybe doesn't build confidence, but it, it actually produces an increase in anxiety. I think that's a trending shift I've seen that we need to be aware of and to be very careful about. And I've talked to my parent body about that. I think that has led to a concomitant increase in expectations that our parents have about what the school might be expected to do. Those would be some trending shifts. And so it's, it's just hard to come unplugged. I'm an extrovert, certainly. But to be an effective extrovert and to be an effective leader and to be an effective head of school, you know, when the head of school shares an idea, some people can think it's actually a decision. So I need to be really careful about what I say and what I do to make sure it's clear. The way that I can be thoughtful and the time it takes to be thoughtful has needed to adjust with those trends I've just named. I also think one more thing I would say here, and I think this is being borne out in what NAIS research has shown, You've done a lot of research at NAS about the jobs that parents expect us to do with schools. You know, that research is pretty recent. You've also done some research around the complexities around enrollment across the country and, and, and the uh, enrollment as a challenge in many of our schools. The financing and fundraising challenges that come with that are also on a rise. Those topics are very board-related topics. And I think that as a head of school, a trend I've noticed is that uh, my ability to be really, really good at all of those things 
and to be a really good partner with the board on all of those things is very important. That the effort and time I need to spend on recruitment and re-recruitment so that we can develop a market together and that the that enrollment is actually everybody's responsibility, not just the admissions office. It's my responsibility as head too, and I need to lead that. The leadership of you know financial sustainability, leadership around fundraising, all of those topics are very important. So maybe the way I would sum up this last trend is for the skill set of the head of school to be uh, broader and deeper than it was when I started eight years ago. And where do you turn to for inspiration? in your role when you're noticing more troublesome trends or just uh, encountering challenges? Uh, where do you look to, to to kind of refresh and refuel and, and get re-inspired? Well, the first place I like to go is to our students. I mean, there's nothing like talking to a preschooler or a kindergartner that level sets and resets my thinking about what's important. We have a uh, an assembly for the school every week. It's called Gather. So we use a verb to describe how we come together as a community. It's attended by all of our students. We have massive amounts of parents and grandparents that attend. And every week, um, every student from the school um, in elementary school stands up and gives a 20-second or so what we call a classroom report on what they learned that past week. Usually it comes with a slide or two on the screen to show what happened in the science lab or in math class. And I'm telling you that that takes probably five minutes every week, but I come away from that absolutely inspired by the learning that is going on in this school and the confidence with which the students at my school are owning that learning and standing up there in charge of their learning because of the work that the teachers are doing. So my first inspiration is our students and the things that are important to them Secondly, I would say that my teachers are very inspirational because of the way that they exercise their growth mindset. This is the week where um, we are now past the conclusion of school and those ending faculty work days. But this is a week where we have what we call curriculum deep dives, where every three years, every curricular area at the school is formally reviewed in literally a deep dive. That's what we call a curriculum deep dive. And I have teachers who are here this week volunteering on three different teams to review the three curricular areas that were up for review this week. Now, we've been doing this for five years, and it's inspirational for me to watch these teachers weigh in on and roll up their sleeves and really think about how they want to improve and advance the curriculum for the school over the next three to five years. That's inspirational. And what's been the biggest surprise, do you think, in your professional life? So here's what it would be. I mentioned to you at the start that I went to seminary. I'm an ordained Episcopal priest, and my priesthood means a lot to me. That's part of my vocation. It's actually part of who I am more than even what I do, but it's part of who I am. And I would say that the biggest surprise was that I thought that when I shifted from maybe spending less time being a school chaplain and more time focused on school administration, like being a department chair and then being a middle school director, now being head of school, I was, I think, seriously worried that I would not be able to exercise my pastoral gifts and skills as much 
and I use the word pastoral with the lowercase p. The biggest surprise for me is I have exercised more pastoral work as a head of school than when I was a chaplain. And that surprise has been very positive for me. The work of headship, I think, is very people-heavy. And I think when it's at its best, it's pastoral. Maybe you can think of Beethoven's pastoral symphony more than official, like, religious. I'm not thinking of the religious matrix here. But the way I listen to people and the way I can be their, uh, their supporter and to empathize, those are all pastoral skills that I think have, be, have been very, very important and I think effective for me as a head of school. And I'm really happy about that. Scott, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time and for hearing my perspectives. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. You can visit NAIS.org slash member voices to explore resources related to my conversation with Scott, including tools to help your school promote great governance. You can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes or subscribe to the podcast to automatically receive new episodes each month. Please be sure to listen, rate, and review each new episode and go back to listen to past episodes that you missed. We also have an NEIS podcast specifically focused on critical governance and leadership issues called The Trustee Table. You can learn more about that podcast by visiting neis.org slash trustee table. And don't forget, we always want to hear your stories, questions, and comments. So please send them to us by sending them to membership at neis.org. <laughs>